from our text this morning as we hear from the living God and his word is from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 12, verses 13 to 34. Welcome to Christ the King on this Thanksgiving Sunday, particularly if you're visiting with us over this weekend. We're glad you're here. We are, as a church, taking a week off this morning from our current sermon series in the books of First and Second Samuel to turn instead, just for this morning, to the teachings of Jesus in order to reflect a bit in a way that perhaps feels appropriate for Thanksgiving. I, this is the text that is, in fact, designated uh, for Thanksgiving Sunday within the Anglican Church in North America. And though the bulletin says we're just in verses 22 to 34 of Luke 12, it seemed to me this week that it's really verse 13 where we needed to start it. I don't think I have to work too hard to establish the main point of the text. Because the words of Jesus tend to speak for themselves, and the principle that governs the entire passage is stated early on, isn't it? Here, amid a large crowd, we have a man who's drawn Jesus' attention, and this particular man is interested in having Jesus come to his defense against a brother who he thinks isn't treating him fairly in a matter of inheritance. So he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, he says. But then Jesus, rather than taking sides with the man, or even against him, does what Jesus so often does. He challenges the very basis of his request. Jesus goes right to the heart, in other words. He goes right to the heart of the matter, which in fact turns out to be the heart. This man's heart, and by extension, of course, our hearts too. So look here at verse 14. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, notice how the the audience has expanded now, to those around, verse 15, and here comes the principle of this passage, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Take care. Be on guard, Jesus says, against all covetousness, or some translations say, against every form of greed. This is entirely about the heart, right? Jesus perceives it. Money, finances, wealth, possessions, these things how we think and feel and live with respect to them, Jesus says, reveals the heart. That is exactly where the passage ends in verse 34, to go to the other end of the text, with Jesus saying there in verse 34, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know Jesus says this kind of thing a lot. He puts it another way. Later in Luke, in chapter 16, in verse 13, where we read Jesus saying, No servant can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or to frame it in the, in the terminology of our passage, if you're coveting money or the possessions that money could buy, then those things are your God. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Okay, so here's a basic definition of coveting. Coveting is seeking our happiness in something or someone other than God. Coveting is seeking our happiness in something other than God. And money isn't the only thing we can covet, of course, so... You know the 10th commandment, Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or husband (laughs) or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, his tools, his truck, his resources, or his donkey, his new car, his motorcycle, or anything that is your neighbor's, Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's TV or new iPhone or shiny shoes or great library or beautiful garden or whatever. The bottom line is you can't covet anything. And Jesus says, be on your guard against all covetousness. So as usual, the key question I ask is why? What's the big deal about coveting? Why is it forbidden? Why? What's the reasoning here? And biblically speaking, there is a very clear answer to that question. It's because, as I've already alluded to, covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. Because what's idolatry? Idolatry is the attempt to look for our lives to anyone or anything other than the one true God, the one true creator and provider of all things. Whom do I thank when things go well? Or to whom do I look when things go badly? Or what do I think will make me ultimately happy? What's the source of my security? Where do I gain my sense of worth in the world? What am I striving to achieve in life and why? Those are the kinds of questions that help determine whether we're honoring God as God or whether we're idolaters. Whether that means we're praying to a stone image as in the prophet Isaiah's day or we're drooling over the car in our neighbor's driveway, covetousness is idolatry. The first and the last of the Ten Commandments are the same commandment. Right? Because the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. But if coveting is seeking our happiness in something or someone other than God, that's called idolatry. That's not my insight. That's not me trying to be clever. The Apostle Paul says it explicitly. So Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul writes, Put to death, therefore... What is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Colossians 3, verse 5. Paul says the same thing, essentially, in Ephesians 5, verse 5. 
For you may be sure of this, Paul writes, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, that's Paul's own parenthetical insertion there, right? Not mine. I didn't just put that in there. He writes, everyone who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Why not? Because if you're coveting, that means that in your heart, you think there's something other than God that you need to be happy. Right? That's it. That is the deep level truth of this text in Luke chapter 12. This is what Jesus is calling this man out on. Guard against all kinds of covetousness, he says. It's a denial of God and who he is and what he's promised to be for you. That's having other gods before him. That's to live your life as if money or whatever thing it is that you covet, as if that's the end game, as if that's the high point or the goal. And it isn't. So Jesus says, perceiving what's happening in that man's heart, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We could just stop and have you think about that sentence for the next 10 minutes. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Maybe it's on Thanksgiving Sunday that we especially need to hear that. Because I think, I love Thanksgiving, I celebrate Thanksgiving, but I think we have to be a little cautious on Thanksgiving in our Western world. Because most of us, by the standards of most of the world, fit into what Jesus is saying. We have quite an abundance of possessions. Jesus is warning us, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And if we're not careful, it becomes pretty easy on Thanksgiving to, frankly, end up giving thanks for the very abundance that Jesus says cannot be at the center of who you are. That's pretty easy to do if if we're not watching it because we just live and breathe this air of materialism and consumerist culture in the West. We're bombarded with this message that success is having more things that will let us live a better life and Advertisers goad us to want more, and they promise fulfillment and well-being that is just one more purchase away. Right, And it's, it, it seems that just about the whole point is to get me to covet. And even Thanksgiving itself, though I'm speaking perhaps more as an American in this moment, where Thanksgiving falls right on the edge of the busiest shopping day of the year. It's the gateway to the materialist season right? Here, a little less so in Canada. But still, we're ramping into the holiday time. We have to be careful how we frame and think about the nature of our thanksgiving. We'll come to what Jesus says about this. The Lord is warning us, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
covetousness is idolatry. The tenth commandment is the first commandment all over again. Jesus says, be on your guard against this. That's the principle. Now, how do we do that? Well, simply put, if covetousness is idolatry, then the way to guard your heart is to worship God. Because when you worship, when you live your life for God, you're literally saying, God, you are worth everything to me. I find my happiness and my contentment in you, and you give me worth, not the status or security or pleasure or whatever it is that's driving my coveting desires sometimes. And look at with this basic, basic principle then established in verse 15 of our text. Jesus goes on to give a parable in verses 16 to 21. And then to give explicit instructions to his disciples in verses 22 to 34. And I would argue that both of those involve worship. Maybe not in exactly the way you think of the word worship, but it's it's here. The parable is a negative example. So according to verse 21, it's about the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God is not honoring God. And then near the end of the instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples, in verse 31, he says explicitly, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So that in both cases here, it's about how we relate to God that is the key. So let's look at each part briefly. Verse 16, and he he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crop. So this man, who's evidently already rich, had even more success. And he has more crops than he has the space for them. So it's going well. Fine. The problem isn't in his abundance specifically. The problem is he's going to move here into some foolish reasoning because he now has a false sense of security. So verse 18, and he said in Jesus' parable, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now you could debate about this, but I'm not sure the problem is in the building of more barns itself necessarily, but rather in what motivated that decision. The problem is in what's missing here. There's no thought here of sharing. There's no thought of stewardship. There's no thought for the poor. The problem is in this man's, in this parable, the neglect of here an opportunity to provide for others less successful than himself. And on top of that, his own self-congratulatory belief that he'd made adequate provision for his own future. So did you notice how the language of verses 17 to 19 is framed in this very selfish way. Just trace the use of the first person pronoun in those verses. It's I, I, my, I, I, my, I, my, my, I, my, right? If I got them all. The man's concerned about himself, about his possessions. 
He doesn't know what to do with an exceedingly abundant crop, and his only solution seems to be to build bigger barns so he can hold more and be more secure. So that verse 19 says, I will say to my soul, soul. I mean, that sounds almost ridiculous, but don't we, we, I mean, do you, we do this kind of thing. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. What's the problem here? (laughs) I would argue the problem isn't that he wants to enjoy good food and drink or have a merry heart. Like, I don't have a problem with that explicitly. The problem, I think, is that nothing of what he has is his, and he doesn't recognize that. You see? He totally misses it. You heard it in the psalm that we read earlier. It's in other places in the psalms too, but the psalm we read in our service, Psalm 65, verse 9, of the Lord, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain. For so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. The man in this parable has forgotten what you and I are reminded of every week when we bring the offering and I or John or Robin or somebody quotes from 1 Chronicles 29, verse 14, for all things have come from you, Lord, and of your own have we given you. You hear the perspective difference there? This man's forgotten that nothing of what he has is his, not even his soul. It will be claimed when he least expects it. This is a man whose retirement package was merely a ticket to hedonism. But brothers and sisters, isn't that exactly the way our society thinks and encourages us to think about life? That's where his heart's really at. I'm not saying you can't retire. I'm not saying you can't enjoy good food. I'm just saying this is the center of his heart. And Jesus says he's a fool. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Which challenges us, right? And I have to stop and breathe deeply whenever I read Jesus say things like this because it's penetrating. And frankly, in a lot of ways, if you were to read about a man like this in something other than a parable of Jesus entitled The Rich Fool, you might be likely to envy his good fortune. And you might say, well, he's so diligent in his quest to preserve his wealth. He's not a fool according to human wisdom, at least, is he? More likely, there'd be folks who would regard him as far-sighted, as shrewd, as able to see the big picture, able to make daring business decisions. But the problem's deeper. The problem is such a person imagines that he can really have control of his life and its end. He thinks he can plan for many years and he doesn't even have one more day to live. 
thinks he can attain joy and security by the accumulation of wealth. Do you hear me say that? Attain security by the accumulation of wealth. And so he puts his trust in what he possesses rather than God. And it will breed a kind of anxiety that Jesus is going to speak against in a moment in our text. Such a person as this has plenty to live on, but nothing to live for. So we hear in Jesus' declaration that he's a fool, the echo of Psalm 14, verse 1, I think. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The glaring fault of this foolish man was that he was living, that he was acting as if there was no God. Does that make sense? Because the deep level teaching here is that covetousness is idolatry. It consumes your heart, brothers and sisters. I'm not talking, when I use the language of the fool saying there is no God, I'm not talking explicitly about the modern day atheist who with his or her words denies the existence of God. We're talking about people who act as if there was no God. Presumably in Jesus' parable, this would be a man who was part of the people of God, part of the people of Israel. He knows that in the Hebrew scriptures, God repeatedly commends those in need to the care of those who have resources. The man knows that, but he ignores it. As Jesus says, he's ready to store up treasures for himself, but isn't rich toward God. I mean, there's a reason Jesus says elsewhere that it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And it's because of this. It's because so often the wealthy, the rich, like this farmer, are lovers of money who aren't rich toward God. That is not a new concern that comes with Jesus. Uh, You can go back to a text like Deuteronomy 31, verse 20, where Moses warned the people of Israel about to enter the land flowing with milk and honey. He warns them that God had said to him that when, quote, they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. They will say, as Deuteronomy 8, verse 17 puts it, listen to this language, my power, and the mighty, the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You see, a life oriented toward riches in that way rather than toward God is a life oriented toward death. So for Jesus, the key question becomes not exactly about how much you have, but whether or not you're rich toward God. Because you use what God's given you for others. That's what the Bible calls love. And you know we have lots of examples in the scriptures of those who have much but who are rich toward God. There's the well-to-do centurion who builds a synagogue for God's people. There's the hospitable home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus where Jesus finds respite. There's those in the early church in Acts who had homes and wealth and were willing to meet the needs of others with them. And nothing's changed. The way to become rich toward God is to invest 
in Christ's church, in the lives of his people, in the needs of others. And just jump ahead to verse 32 to see this is where Jesus is going in our passage. The conclusion to this whole text, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we can enlarge our savings and we can build our accounts to hold it all and we can plan our retirement to maximize pleasure until the day we die. And we can live as if this is all of life and the source of our happiness and we can even end up giving thanks for all of that on Thanksgiving if we're not careful. Or we can receive Jesus' challenging teaching here and see how it is that we can be rich toward God because we give, give, and give. Which I would submit is actually the test of whether or not we're really thankful. Are we rich toward God? I ran into a verse this week in thinking about this that I don't know if I've ever heard before. Proverbs 19, verse 17. Probably some of you have heard this, but this arrested me this week. Proverbs 19, verse 17. Listen to this. It says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Isn't that remarkable? Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. An amazing verse. Why? Because to give demonstrates that your God isn't money, or status, or luxury, or security, because that's how you ensure your happiness is rooted in God, not in stuff, because that's how you keep both the first and the last commandment. So after giving this general principle and then Jesus gives him the parable and then in verses 29 and following, and we'll just touch on it, but we get some more instructions from Jesus in our passage here in Luke 12. A further elaboration, I think, for the benefit of the disciples of the point that's been made here in the parable. Of course, the key verb in verses 29 and following is to worry. The issue is one of anxiety, as I alluded to earlier, and I think that what's suggested here is a different answer to the fool's question. What should I do? The fool responds by building bigger barns, seeking security for the future in what he's been able to amass for himself. The disciples are to respond exactly in the opposite way, by giving it away and by not worrying. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, alluding to what has just come before, in Luke's arrangement. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on for life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Now, Jesus' point isn't that food and clothing are not important. Jesus doesn't say that one should ignore food for the sake of life or, or clothing for the sake of the body. In fact, I think the passage is saying exactly the opposite. 
that we're not to worry about food and clothing precisely because God knows how important they are. In fact, they're so important that God provides them even to birds and grass and flowers. And that that's why the nations of the world, in the language of Luke here, meaning not the people of God, the pagan or the Gentiles, the nations of the world strive after those things. The struggle they have in striving is a result of their not knowing the God who provides even for the ravens, even for the lilies, the common birds, the grass that withers and fades. All of which is to say that when Christians who have all we really need still worry anxiously about having enough and seek to accumulate more and more, all we're doing is falling into the same trap as the fool in Jesus' parable here. Ultimately, the alternative to worrying isn't just some careless attitude. Verse 31, instead, Jesus says, seek his kingdom. Meaning what? Well, the kingdom of God, the new order of God, the new order that has come in Jesus that will be fully realized when Jesus comes again, the order in which God's will is done, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, explicitly in this text, what is God's will? It's that even the ravens be fed, even the lilies are clothed. For his disciples then to strive for the kingdom is, among other things, to make certain that others are fed and clothed. So as one author puts it, the imperative to relinquish wealth grows out of the assurance that God provides sustenance and beauty sufficient for a good life. Generosity flows from confidence in God's willingness and ability to provide. We're not to worry about securing such things because they're important to God. In fact, it's precisely because they're important to God that we must oppose the things which preclude others from having them. And so in the very passage about not worrying over food and clothing, Jesus invites his followers to give, to provide for those who are hungry or naked. You see, the whole narrative of this is the same. The, the harvest of Jesus' parable, the man in Jesus' parable, the harvest is the miraculous gift from God. But the problem is the farmer didn't treat that crop as an opportunity for sharing with others from what God has provided, but instead as an occasion to keep more for himself, to hedge against future bad harvests is the thinking. But that's the kind of action that's rooted in fear and anxiety that you might not have enough next time. So I like how one commentator puts it. Fear breeds obsession with survival. It is a small step then to idolatry. See there, he's on the pulse of this, I think. It's a small step then to idolatry, the vain attempt to substitute certitude for faith, to find security in that which can be controlled rather than which simply must be trusted. Faith sees the abundance as surplus to be shared because God can be trusted to provide enough next year as well.
It's a matter of where one's treasure is. If it's on earth, as in the case of the rich man who decided to build bigger barns, then it won't last. If it's in heaven, as in the case of those who give to others in need without being anxious, it will have lasting value. The way to store wealth in heaven, brothers and sisters, is to give it away on earth. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So, dear friends, that's the word for this Thanksgiving. That this Thanksgiving needs to be a time of recognizing, as Psalm 24, verse 1 says, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And giving thanks to the God of all creation. May our hearts find the freedom to lend to the Lord as we give to others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.